God, would you prepare our hearts now to receive and to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 810, 810 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to use that this morning. Last week, we began talking about our identity in Christ, or who I am in Christ. Knowing our identity, knowing who we are in Christ matters. When we don't know who we are, we'll be prone to believe lies. We'll be prone to uh, believe untruths about ourselves. We'll be led to doubt. We will have fear and times of hopelessness. Last week, I read for you a list of 33 statements called Who I Am in Christ by Neil T. Anderson, a list that is available, again, on the resource table. And I want to read the list again to you this morning. And as you listen, uh, maybe even if if you can stay awake that long, close your eyes to better focus. Um, I want you to take notes of what truths uh, stand out to you again. What, what truths resonate uh, with you most this morning? So listen to these 33 statements about who I am in Christ. Who I am in Christ. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I'm united with the Lord and I am one spirit with him. I have been brought, I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body. I am a saint, a holy one. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ who I am in Christ. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am free from all condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I'm confident that the good work that God has begun in me will be perfected. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. I can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. I am born of God and the evil one cannot touch me. Who I am in Christ. I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I am a branch of the true vine, Jesus. I have been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. I am a personal, spirit-empowered witness of Christ. I am a temple of God. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am a fellow worker with God. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship created for good works. 
I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And again, Anderson writes, I am not the great I am, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Would you pray with me? God, this list just causes us to rejoice, truly. Some of us are prone to believe things that are just categorically untrue. Maybe it's based on some of the choices we've made in our life. Maybe it's based on what some people have told us throughout our life. And yet, Father, I pray that the word of God would inform us. I pray that not just this morning, I pray it tomorrow morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that. That you would guard us from the lies of Satan, who is the father of lies. And you'd help us to believe the truth. The spirit of truth guides us into truth, and so I pray that the spirit would do that even now this morning. As we continue to consider these truths, these truths, these biblical truths, what you say, not just what I think, not what I feel, not what the world might say or someone might say, but what you have said. I pray that more and more your words would inform our thoughts. And we pray for that. And we pray for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A Scottish pastor and theologian, William Barclay, has said, there are two great days in a person's life. The day we are born and the day we discover why. Knowing our identity not only protects us from believing lies, it certainly does that, but it also rightly informs what we do. We are not what we do, but because of who we are, there are things that we do. Uh, but if I don't know who I am, I will not know what I am to be doing. I won't know what my life is to be about. But, but who I am, um, who I am informs what I do. And this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to two of the, the identities, two of the truths that we just read that, that also express to us why we exist. And the first comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And uh, listen as I read Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The first truth we want to look at this morning is that in Christ, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt of the earth and light of the world. Now, there's, there's a subtle but important word used in these two verses that actually affect how we understand it. It's the second word in verse 13 and the second word in verse 14. It's a three-letter word. It is the word are, A-R-E. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus does not say you should be the salt of the earth 
or you might be the salt of the earth, or you could be, or you need to be, or you're supposed to be, or you ought to be. No, he says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And who is he speaking about? He's speaking about his disciples, his people, his followers, Christians. When you become a Christian, when you are in Christ, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. The question is not if you are salt or if you are light. The question is, to what degree are you salt and to what degree are you light? The use of the metaphor here of salt and light indicate something, right? That there, he's using a metaphor to tell us something of what that means. It speaks of influence and it speaks of effects. When we think about salt, salt affects what it comes into contact with, right? So salt makes a difference. You think about a roadway when it's icy in the use of salt or, or a sidewalk in, in the use of uh, of salt. I once, <clears throat> I once made a birthday cake for, for Amanda. Yes, once. I, I once made a birthday. Okay, uh, that's not the point. <clears throat> so let's say, what, here's, here's what happened. So, um, so I was making a cake, and there's, there's uh, measurements. And, uh, you know, it's easy to confuse those, the, the TB uh, and the TBS. I think that's right, right? Well, easy, all right? You've done this before, okay? The snickering is a little much, okay? <laughs> all right, okay. So, let's just say I was generous with the salt, all right? It's the thought that counts, people. Okay, so, um, the ratio was a little off, and needless to say, the cake tasted like the ratio was way off, right? Not good. Not good at all. We did not eat that cake, and I don't think I've made a cake. I don't think I've made a cake sense. Right. But the point, the point is this, <clears throat> is that salt makes a difference, right? Too much salt, not enough salt, the right amount of salt, it all makes a difference. Salt does that. That's the effect that salt has. The, the, the obvious application here is, is are you making any effects? Are, are you making a difference? As, as the salt of the earth, how are you affecting those around you for Christ? When Jesus says you are the salt of the, the, the earth, he's saying that, that you are having an impact. In Christ, you are that. Can anyone tell that you are that? He also talks about salt losing its, its saltiness. So that's possible too. But the intention of salt is that it affects, it also preserves. We know that at one time, salt was used to prevent decay and to preserve food from spoiling. That was the use of salt, or a use of salt. It was, it was meant to preserve something, to contain something in its, um, in its form, or in its, its freshness, so to speak. Salt is meant to preserve, and so we ask ourselves, in what ways are we preserving anything? In what ways are we preserving the testimony of Christ? Uh, the term conserv a conservative is, is uh, now made you know, totally political. But, but the idea of a conservative really means someone who conserves something. Someone who's protecting something. That's what a conservative is. It's, it's not a Republican. That's not, those aren't synonymous. 
That's not what that means. A conservative is someone who conserves something, who protects it, who preserves it. In a similar way, salt is meant to do that. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, we ask then, what are we preserving? How are we pushing back on the, the impending decay of the world? The, the degradation that we see all around us, how is our salt, our lives, having any difference if we were removed, would it matter? Finally, salt creates thirst. It not only affects something, it not only preserves something, but it, it creates something. It creates thirst. Now, you might not know this, but I, I've, I know this from two, two reliable uh, people, that there are concession stand workers who oversalt the popcorn. And they oversalt the popcorn do you know why? So that you buy a drink. Now that's really manipulative. And that is not what Jesus is talking about here. But the, the application is this, right? The application is that salt has an effect. It, it, will, it will make you want something. It, 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 can, it can affect you in that way. Similarly, right? As the salt of the earth, it creates a thirst for, for what is going on. What, what is different about this person? It, it, makes, it makes us take notice. Christians are well-equipped by God's grace to be salt, to be influencers, to have an impact. Salt works that way. If you are the salt of the earth, we might ask, how is that working in your life? By the way that you live, do others want to know something about you? Is it, is it causing others to see something? Is it demanding? Is your life demanding an explanation? You are the salt of the earth. But that's not all that Jesus says that we are. He says that we're the light of the world. Look at verse 14 again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. There's, there's no way to hide it. Now let's keep reading. Verse 15. Nor do people light a, a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, your light shines before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A light speaks of our, our outward testimony. And here, this description or this description of light of the world is also given to someone else in the Bible, more prominent than you or me, Jesus himself, right? In John chapter 8 and in John chapter 9, Jesus is called the light of the world. And here, Jesus refers to us, those who are his followers, as the light of the world. Now, this can only make sense if the light that, that we shine is the light of Christ. Right? That only makes sense. Right? We, we cannot be the light of the world and Jesus be the light of the world, and those are two different lights. I would actually um, offer you the, the concept of saying we are more like the moon than we are the sun. The lesser light that Genesis 1 talks about. The lesser light that reflects the light of the sun. Right? So in that way, we are the light of the world because we're reflecting the light of the world. But there's at least four things we could see uh, about, about this light or, or think about this light. And one is that, that light is silent, right? 
Light, light doesn't typically make noise. It doesn't make a big deal about itself. It doesn't direct attention to itself. When we look at Christ's life, his, his, his objective was not to have attention drawn to him. As you read the Gospels early on, especially, Jesus is telling people, don't talk about me. Don't tell other people about me. Jesus was telling people about himself, but he wasn't wanting other people to be told quite yet. It wasn't to draw attention to himself. Not for the sake of himself, but he was doing what he was doing in order to show the love of God and the plan of salvation. And we might ask ourselves, as the light of the world, are we seeking attention for ourselves or is any attention that we do receive for the sake of Christ? Because as silent as light is, we clearly know that light is noticeable. You can't be a light and not be noticed. That's kind of the point, isn't it, of a light. A light is to shed light. It is to give sight. So though it is silent, it is not. It doesn't go unnoticed. If we're truly living as lights... If we're truly shining, as it were, people will notice. That's what verses 15 and 16 are talking about. Nor do people set a light, uh, a light, um, uh, let me try to do that again. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Well, do that, it doesn't make any sense. That's not what you do with a lamp, but you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, your light shines before others so that they might see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The point of the light isn't to direct them to the light. It's to direct them to the source of the lights. Christians are to have an impact in the world by illuminating the world with the light of Christ, who we know is the light of the world. The light is illuminated how? By our good works that don't point, us to, point them to us, but to our God. Our godly life is, evidence, is evidenced by good works, and that's the testimony of God, which brings him glory. Maybe a question as we think of being a light, that though silent is noticeable, is to consider if your light was not present, would the circle, your circle, your circle of influence, your, your, your world or your, your little world, would they know the difference? If your light was removed, would it matter? If we are the light of the world, and the answer is, or the question isn't if, but it's how bright, it's a fair question to say, to what degree am I shining at all? To what degree am I, am I producing anything at all by grace through Christ? Maybe you can think of people in your life who are no longer here with us. Their light is no longer shining, we might say. And in some ways, of course, on a personal level, the world is darker for us. That's absolutely true, and we all understand that on a, on a personal, relational level. But on a spiritual level, to say that their, their capacity to shed the light of the world to the world, how has that impacted the world? Maybe you can think of some. I know I can. Their absence makes our world less bright. Light is silent, but it is noticeable. And thirdly, light displaces the darkness. Uh, many people are searching for something. 
Right? They're searching for truth. They're trying to figure it out, what, what is right. And we must take the opportunity as the light of the world to shed light into the world. <laughs> That's kind of the point of the lights. So if you're the light of the world and you're not shedding any lights, we might ask, well, what's the point of a light? What's the value of a light that doesn't shine any light? What's the value of salt that doesn't, has no saltiness? There isn't. There isn't any value. That's actually what verse 13 says about the salt. What do they do? It, it's thrown out. It's good for nothing. How are you the light in, in, in the darkness of this world? How are you light at your school or at your work? How are you light in a classroom or on a, on a, on a field? How are you at light in your home or in your community or at the restaurant or at the store or at the gas station or wherever else you go? Well, finally, light is active. Light moves out from its source. It doesn't stay put, it goes. As Christ left his home and came to light this world, we are called to go and to be a light in the world in which we live. If you hide your light under a, under a basket, what, what is the point of the light after all? Light is not meant to be hid. It's meant to be shown. Shown in order to bring attention to Jesus. And so we ask, does the world see Christ in you? That's what we mean when we say sh shining the light, showing Christ. Does the world see Christ in you? Again, it's not about trying to be salt or trying to be light. In Christ, you are salt and you are light. For the Christian, again, it is not if, but it is how. Well, that's not all that we can know about our identity and how our identity informs our existence. It's not just that I'm a child of God and Christ's friend that we looked at last week. That, that's encouraging. And that should help us to know that, that we matter and that we're accepted by God and loved by God. And that's all true. But then we say, well, what, 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 what do I do about that? What, what is that? How does that affect me? Well, here's one way it affects me. That now, as a child of God, as a friend of Christ, I am the salt of the earth. I'm the light of the world. We also can see that I am a minister of reconciliation for God. Can you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? If you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be on page 966. 966. In Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation for God. We're going to begin in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
In Christ, we are called new creations. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to God with Christ. To be reconciled, it's not a word that we hear a lot. So let's, to be reconciled means to settle, to settle a quarrel or difference, to make two apparently conflicting things compatible. One writer says, biblical reconciliation is the process of two previously alienated parties coming to peace with each other. Another writer says, reconciliation is not some polite ignoring or reduction of hostility, but rather it's total and objective removal of the hostility. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God. This is what God has done. Look at verse 19. How did he do it? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. You don't make yourself right with God. You don't make yourself at peace with God. That's not how it works. We are the offending party. So it is God who is making peace with us. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How are we reconciled? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or here in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ. And we ought to pause for a moment and just take in and recognize how amazing and absolutely incomprehensible it is that the enemies of God can be reconciled to him. That an infinite creator God, divine being, king of all things, in kindness and grace, has reconciled you and me to himself. That's amazing. God reconciling his enemies to himself, how? Through the death of his son. That's how. God brought peace to the war of sin and death. How? Through the crucifixion of his son. That's what our salvation required. It is no small thing. We speak of salvation and forgiveness as free. The free gift of salvation, we say. And it is free in the sense that we cannot earn it. We cannot purchase it. We can do nothing to deserve it. That's all true. But it is costly. 
It costs something. And what did it cost? It cost God his son. It cost Jesus his life. It cost the, the triune God eternal unity. We say so lightly the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is nothing light about that statement at all. It is only weight. It is only glory. It is only meaning. It is only significance. For God, God so loved who? The world, the world, the humanity that he did what he gave. He gave what? His only begotten son. That what? That whosoever would believe may not perish, die eternally, but have what? Have everlasting life. Through Christ, we are reconciled to God. We're made at peace with him. It, the, the war is over. Some of you have lived long enough where you've lived through, through wars that ended. I got to tell you, in, in most of my lifetime, the wars that we've been in haven't ever really ended. They, they kind of sort of stop, but then they start back up again. The idea of the war being over the idea of the, the troops coming home and the celebration that, that it's over, like that, that's all past history to me. But, but here, the reconciliation of God with his enemies, the war is over. The war is over. The victory has been won. The purchase has been made. Peace between God and man has been accomplished through the cross. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God. The very thing you long for, to be at peace with God, is now possible through Christ. God has made reconciliation possible through the work of his Son. Glory to God. And this reconciliation now is our message. In Christ, you are a minister of reconciliation for God. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God. God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that... In him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What is the appeal in verse 20? Making God making his appeal through us. What is it? Be reconciled to God. That's the appeal. In Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation for God. What is the appeal of the minister? Be reconciled to God. Be made at peace with God. This is the message and the ministry of all who are in Christ. So who are you if you're in Christ? Who you are then informs what you do and what do you do according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? You are a minister of reconciliation. Having been reconciled, having been made at peace with God, we implore now, we urge, we plead with others to be reconciled to God. How? Through Christ. 
who what, verse 21, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. If you just keep reading into verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, working together with him. Who's him? It's God. A minister of reconciliation for God. We, we are fellow workers with God. And what's the fellow work? It's the reconciliation of those who are his enemies. It's the message, be reconciled to God. Keep reading in verse one. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You've heard it already this morning. For God to love the world, that's his grace to you. That he sent his son. Don't receive it in vain. Don't receive it as though I've heard that before. No, receive it as the life-giving news that it's meant to be. That it changes not just, not just eternal life, which is a big deal, but it changes your earthly life as well. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, verse 2. For he says, what does he say? In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And every time we read that, we can say, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. If you're with us today, if you're within the sound of my voice this morning, and you don't know God, if you've never come to Christ, if you're not at peace with God this morning, let me tell you that you were made by God. You were made to be with God. And that you can be made right with God. Which is your greatest need. God has made a way for that to happen through his son and only through his son. Today is the day of salvation. I plead with you, do not receive this grace in vain, but to hear it, and not just hear it, but to believe it. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, not only is God telling us about rec reconciliation and that he has reconciled us through Christ, that we are the ministers of reconciliation, but we also recognize that reconciliation does not only affect our relationship with God. The extent of our reconciliation with God extends to others. It is, not our it is our reconciliation with God that is the foundation for, the motivation for, the, the underpinnings of reconciliation with one another. The reason we can reconcile with each other is because we've been reconciled with God. Milton Vincent in his little book, A Gospel Primer, uh, says this, the gospel is not just a message of reconciliation with God, but it, is, it also heralds the reconciliation of all believers to one another in Christ. Through the death of Christ, God has brought peace where there was once hostility. He has broken down the barriers that once divided us outside of Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to this. And it says, for he himself is our peace. That's Jesus. Who has made us both one and has brought down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what Jesus came to do. How do you do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is not only that we're reconciled to God, but that we can be reconciled to one another. That God's plan is unity among his people. God's plan is for there to be reconciliation. Now the presence of reconciliation indicates what? Hostility. It indicates that there's going to be conflict. It indicates that that we won't always get along and therefore we will need to be reconciled to one another. So that the presence of conflict isn't, isn't shocking. What it tells us though is that there's a way for there to be peace because of Christ. Is this easy? No. Does it usually happen overnight? No. Does it require much prayer, humility, repentance, and forgiveness? Yes. Does it honor Christ? Yes. Will God bless it? Yes. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, talking about the putting on and putting off. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, putting up with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as God has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The reconciliation that God has brought through his son is not only to bring us to God, but to bring us together as one. Who you are informs what you do. You will not understand life until you know that you were made by God and made for God. And therefore, your life's purpose is bound up in what God says about you. And today, he tells you that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and you are a minister of reconciliation for God. Wherever you are today, whatever your phase of life, whatever your place in this world, those things are still true. They'll be true for you till the day you die. No matter what your circle of influence looks like, no matter what your position or your title looks like, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and you are a minister of reconciliation for God. God has plans for you, but namely they are to know him and to walk in his ways, to be at peace with him and his people. Jeff Vanderstelt writes, we are who we are because of who he is and what he has done. Christian, today you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are a minister of reconciliation for God. May God help us to be who we are in Christ for his glory and for our good. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful this morning for the love of Christ shown to us.
if we've ever spent time reflecting on what life would be like without Jesus, it's not a great proposition. And so with glad hearts, we remember today the work of Jesus on our behalf. Not only that he has come to save, but he has come to give us purpose, to give our lives meaning. To help us to know that we have a significant mission in the world today. That as salt and as light, we have, we have purpose, we have a reason, we have something that we're after, we're something that we're preserving, something that we're displaying. And as a minister of reconciliation, we have the good news, the good news for the enemies of God, which we once were. So who better to tell the good news than a former enemy who's been made a friend. Not only a friend, a son. So God, would you give us opportunities this week? Opportunities to be the salt, opportunities to be the light, opportunities to proclaim the message of reconciliation, that Christ has come and peace with God can be had. Would you help us do it this week, we pray. For those with us who don't know you, I pray even again, God, that they would be reconciled to you today. That hearing the good news of Jesus, that they would want to be made at peace with you. They would want to know their sins are forgiven, want to know their, their place in heaven, want to know the relationship with the Father that they can have, starting even now, if they would but repent and believe. No, I pray the Spirit would do its work now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our God.